Book Three, Chapter One of *The Black Star Passes* by John Campbell. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Kirk Ziegler. The terrestrian and Venerian governments had met in conference—a grim, business-like discussion with few words wasted. Obviously, this was to be a war of science, a war on a scale never known on either world. Agreements were immediately drawn up between the two worlds for a concerted, cooperative effort. A fleet of new and vastly more powerful ships must be constructed, but first they must have a complete report on the huge invading aircraft that had fallen in western Canada, and on Venus, for they might conceivably make their secrets their own. They called for the scientists whose work had made possible their successful resistance of the marauders, Arcot, Morey, and Wade. They found them working in the Arcot laboratories. "'Wade!' called Arcot tensely as he snapped the switch of the televisophone. "'Bring Morey and meet me at the machine on the roof at once. That was a call from Washington. I'll explain as soon as you get there.' On the roof Arcot opened the hangar doors and entered the five-passenger molecular motion ship inside. Its sleek, streamlined side spoke of power and speed. This was a special research model, designed for their experiments, and carrying mechanisms not found in commercial crafts. Among these were automatic controls, still in the laboratory stage, but permitting higher speed, for no human being could control the ship as accurately as these. It took the trio a little less than a quarter of an hour to make the 5,000-mile trip from New York to the battlefield of Canada. As they sped through the air, Arcot told them what had transpired. The three were passed through lines at once, and they settled to the ground beside one of the huge ships that lay half-buried in the ground. The force of the impact had splashed the solid soil as a stone will splash soft mud, and around the ship was a massive ridge of earth. Arcot looked at the titanic proportions of this ship from space, and turned to his friends. "'We can investigate that wreck on foot, but I think it'll be far more sensible to see what we can do with the car. This monster is certainly a mile or more long, and we'd spend more time walking than investigation. I suggest we see if there isn't room for the car inside. This beats even those huge Caxorian planes for size.' Arcot paused, then grinned. I sure would have liked to mix in the fight they must have had there. Nice little things to play with, aren't they?" "'It would make a nice toy,' agreed Wade, as he looked at the rows of wicked-looking projectors along the sides of the metal hall. "'And I wonder if there might not be some of the crew alive in there. If there are, the size of the ship would prevent their showing themselves very quickly. And since they can't move the ship, it seems to me that they'll let us know shortly that they're around. Probably, with the engines stopped, their main weapons are useless, but they would doubtless have some sort of guns. I'm highly in favor of using the car. We carry a molecular director ray, so if the way is blocked, we can make a new one." Wade's attention was caught by a sudden flare of light a few miles across the plain. "'Look over there! That ship is still flaming, reddish, but almost colorless. Looks like a gas flame, with a bit of calcium in it almost as if the air and the ship were combustible. If we should do any exploring in this baby, I suggest we use altitude suits. They can't do any harm in any case." Three or four of the great wrecks, spread over a wide area, were burning now, hurling forth long tongues of colorless, intensely hot flame. 
Several of the ships had been only slightly damaged. One had been brought down by a beam that had torn free the entire tail of the ship, leaving the bow in good condition. Apparently this machine had not fallen far. Perhaps the pilot had retained partial control of the ship, his power failing when he was only a comparatively short distance from Earth. This was rather well to one side of the plane, however, and they decided to investigate it later. The ship nearest them had crashed nose first, the point being crushed and shattered. Arcot maneuvered his craft cautiously toward the great hull at the nose of the ship, and they entered the mighty vessel very slowly, a powerful spotlight illuminating the interior. Tremendous girders, twisted and broken by the force of impact, thrust up about them. It soon became evident that there was little to fear from any living enemies, and they proceeded more rapidly. Certainly no creature could live after a shock that had broken these huge girders. Several times metal beams blocked their path, and they were forced to use the molecular director ray to bend them out of the way. Man, Arcot said as they stopped a moment to clear away a huge member that was bent across their path, but those beams do look as if they were built permanently. I'd hate to ram into one of them. Look at that one. If that has anywhere near the strength of steel, just think of the force it took to bend it. At last they had penetrated the long tube that led through the length of the ship, the communication tube. This admitted the small ship easily, and they moved swiftly along till they came to what they believed to be about the center of the invader. Here Arcot proposed that they step out and see what there was to be seen. The others agreed and at once they put on their altitude suits of heavy rubberized canvas designed to be worn outside the ship when at high altitude or even in space. They were supplied with oxygen tanks that would keep the wearer alive for about six hours. Unless the atmosphere remaining in the alien ship was excessively corrosive, they would be safe. After brief discussion they decided that all would go, for if they met opposition there would be strength in numbers. They met their first difficulty in opening the door leading out of the communication tube. It was an automatic door and resisted their every effort, until finally they were forced to tear it out with a ray. It was impossible to move it in any other way. The door was in what was now the floor, since the ship seemed to have landed on one side rather than on its keel. They let themselves through the narrow opening one at a time, and landed on the sloping wall of the corridor beyond. Lucky this wasn't a big room, or we'd have had a nice drop to the far wall," commented Wade. The suits were equipped with a thin vibrating diaphragm that made speech easy, but Wade's voice came through it with a queerly metallic ring. Arcot agreed somewhat absently, his attention directed toward their surroundings. His hand light pierced the blackness, finally halting at a gaping opening, apparently the entrance to a corridor. As they examined it, they saw that it slanted steeply downward. It seems to be quite a drop, said Wade as he turned his light into it, but the surface seems to be rather rough. I think we can do it. I noticed that you brought a rope, Morey. I think it'll help. I'll go first unless someone else wants the honor. You go first? Arcot hesitated briefly. But I don't know. If we're all going, I guess you'd better at that. It would take two ordinary men to lower a bulk like you. On the other hand, if anyone is going to stay, you're delegated as the elevator boy. Hold everything, continued Arcot. I have an idea. I think none of us will need to hold the weight of the others with the rope. Wade, 
Will you get three fairly good-sized pieces of metal, something we can tie a rope to? I think we can get down there without the help of anyone else. Morey, will you cut the rope in three equal pieces while I help Wade tear loose that girder? Arcot refused to reveal his idea till his preparations were complete, but worked quickly and efficiently. With the aid of Wade, he soon had three short members, and taking the rope that Morey had prepared, he tied lengths of the cord to the pieces of the metal, leaving twenty-foot lengths hanging from each. Now he carefully tested his handiwork to make sure the knots would not slip. "'Now, let's see what we can do.' Arcot put a small loop in one end of the cord, thrust his left wrist through this, and grasped the rope firmly with his hand. Then he drew his ray pistol and adjusted it carefully for the direction of action. The trigger gave him control over power. Finally he turned the ray on the block of metal at the other end of the rope. At once the metal pulled vigorously, drawing the rope taut, and as Arcot increased the power he was dragged slowly across the floor. "'Ah, it works!' he smiled broadly over his shoulder. "'Come on, boys, hitch your wagon to a star and we'll go on with the investigation. This is new.' Double action parachute. It lets you down easy and pulls you up easier. I think we can go where we want now. After a pause, he added, I don't have to tell you that too much power will be very bad. With Arcot's simple break, they lowered themselves into the corridor below, descending one at a time to avoid any contact with the ray, since the touch of the beam was fatal. The scene that lay before them was one of colossal destruction. They had evidently stumbled upon the engine room. They could not hope to illuminate its vast expanse with their little hand lights, but they could gain some idea of its magnitude and of its original layout. The floor now tilted at a steep angle. It was torn up in many places, showing great massive beams, buckled and twisted like so many wires, while the heavy floor plates were crumpled like so much foil. Everywhere the room seemed covered with a film of white silvery metal. It was silver, they decided, after a brief examination, splattered broadcast over all the walls of the room. Suddenly, Morey pointed ceilingward with his light. That's where the silver came from, he exclaimed. A network of heavy bars ran across the roof, great bars of solid silver fully three feet thick. In one section gaped a ragged hole, suggesting the work of a disintegration ray, a hole that went into the metal roof above, one which had plainly been fused, as had the great silver bars. Arcot looked in wonder at the heavy metal bars. Lord! Bus bars three feet thick! What engines they must have! Look at the way those were blown out! They were short-circuited by the crash, just before the generator went out, and they were volatilized! Some juice! With the aid of their improvised elevators, the three men attempted to explore the tremendous chamber. They had scarcely begun when Wade exclaimed, "'Bodies!' They crowded around his gruesome find and caught their first glimpse of the invaders from space. Anatomical details could not be distinguished since the bodies had been caught under a rain of crushing beams, but they saw that they were not too different from both terrestrians and venerians, though their blood seemed strangely pallid and their skin was of a ghastly whiteness. Evidently they had been assembled before an unfamiliar sort of instrument panel when catastrophe struck. Morey indicated the dials and keys. "'Nice to know what you're fighting,' Arcot observed. "'I've a hunch that we'll see some of these critters alive, but not in this ship.' 
They turned away and resumed their examination of the shattered mechanisms. A careful examination was impossible. They were in wrecks, but Arcot did see that they seemed mainly to be giant electrical machines of standard types, though on a gargantuan scale. There were titanic masses of wrecked metal, iron, and silver. For with these men silver seemed to replace copper, though nothing could replace iron and its magnetic uses. They are just electrical machines, I guess, Arcot said at last. But what size? Have you seen anything really revolutionary, Wade? Wade frowned and answered, There are just two things that bother me. Come here. As Arcot jumped over, nearly suspended by his ray pistol, Wade directed his light on a small machine that had fallen between the cracks in the giant mass of broken generators. It was a little thing, apparently housed in a glass case. There was only one objection to that assumption. The base of a large generator lay on it. Metal fully two feet thick, and that metal was cracked where it rested on the case. And the case, made of material an inch and a half thick, was not dented. Whew! That's a nice kind of glass to have, Morey commented. I'd like to have a specimen for examination. Oh, I wonder. Yes, it must be. There's a window in the side up there toward what was the bow that seemed to me to be the same stuff. It's buried about three feet in solid earth, so I imagine it must be. The three made their way at once to where they had seen the window. The frame appeared to be steel or some such alloy, and it was twisted and bent under the blow, for this was evidently the outer wall, and the impact of the landing had flattened and rounded the side. But that glass window was quite undisturbed. There was, as further proof, a large granite boulder laying against it on the outside, or what had been a boulder, though it had been shattered by the impact. "'Say, that's some building material,' Arcot indicated the transparent sheet. "'Just look at that granite rock, smashed into sand, yet the window wasn't even scratched. Look how the frame that held it is torn. Just torn, not broken. I wonder if we can tear it loose altogether.' He stepped forward, raising his pistol. There was a thud as his metal bar crashed down when the ray was shut off. Then, as the others got out of the way, he stepped toward the window and directed his beam toward it. Gradually he increased the power, till suddenly there was a rending crash, and they saw only a leaping column of earth and sand and broken granite flying up through the hole in the steel shell. There was a sudden violent crash. Then in a moment later, a second equally violent crash as the window, having flown up to the ceiling, came thumping back to the floor. After the dust had settled, they came forward, looking for the window. They found it, somewhat buried by the rubbish, laying off to one side. Arcot bent down to tilt it and swept the dirt off. He grasped it with one hand and pulled. The window remained where it was. He grasped it with both hands and pulled harder. The window remained where it was. Uh, say, lend a hand, will you, Wade? Together the two men pulled, but without results. That window was about three feet by two feet by one inch, making the total volume about one-half a cubic foot, but it certainly was heavy. They could not begin to move it. An equal volume of lead would have weighed about four hundred pounds, but this decidedly was more than four hundred pounds. Indeed, the combined strength of the three men did no more than rock it. "'Well, it certainly is no kind of matter we know of,' observed Morey. "'Osmium, the heaviest metal known, has a density of twenty-two and a half, which would weigh about seven hundred and thirty pounds. I think we could lift that. 
So this is heavier than anything we know. At least that's proof of a new system. Between Venus and Earth we have found every element that occurs in the sun. These people must have come from another star. Either that, returned Arcot, or proof of an amazing degree of technological advancement. It's only a guess, of course, but I have an idea where this kind of matter exists in the solar system. I think you have already seen it, in the gaseous state. You should remember, of course, that the Caxorians had great reservoirs for storing light energy in a bound state in their giant planes. They had bound light, light held in the gravitational attraction for itself, after condensing it in their apparatus. But they had what amounted to a gaseous light. Now suppose that someone makes a light condenser even more powerful than the one the Caxorians used, a condenser that forces the light so close to itself, increases its density till the photons hold each other permanently, and the substance becomes solid. It will be matter, matter made of light, light matter, and let us call it a metal. You know that ordinary matter is electricity matter, and electricity matter metals conduct electricity readily. Now why shouldn't our light matter, metal, conduct light? It would be a wonderful substance for windows. But now comes the question of moving it, Wade interposed. We can't lift it, and we certainly want to examine it. That means we must take it to the laboratory. I believe we're about through here. The place is quite clearly permanently demolished. I think we'd better return to the ship and start to that other machine we saw that didn't appear to be so badly damaged. But how can we move this? I think a ray may do the trick. Arcot drew his ray pistol and stepped back a bit, holding the weapon so the ray would direct the plate straight up. Slowly he applied the power, and as he gradually increased it, the plate stirred, then moved into the air. It works! Now you can use your pistol, Morey, and direct it toward the corridor. I'll set it up and let it fall outside, where we can pick it up later." Morey stepped forward, and while Arcot held it in the air with his ray, Morey propelled it slowly with his till it was directly under the corridor leading upward. Then Arcot gave a sudden increase in power, and the plate moved swiftly upward, sailing out of sight. Arcot shut off his ray, and there came to their ears a sudden crash as the plate fell to the floor above. The three men regained their ropes and double-action parachutes as Arcot called them, and floated up to the next floor. Again they started the process of moving the plate. All went well till they came to the little car itself. They could not use the ray on the car, for fear of damaging the machinery. They had to use some purely mechanical method of hoisting it in. Finally they solved the problem by using the molecular director ray to swing a heavy beam into the air, and then one man pulled on the far end of it with a rope, and swung it till it was resting on the door of the ship on one end, and the other rested in a hole they had torn in the lining of the tube. Now they maneuvered the heavy plate till it was resting on that beam. Then they released the plate, and watched it slide down the incline, shooting straight through the open doorway of the car. In moments the job was done. The plate was at last safely stowed, the three men climbed into the car and prepared to leave. The little machine glided swiftly down the tube through the mighty ship, finally coming out through the opening that had admitted them. They rose quickly into the air and headed for the headquarters of the government ships. End of chapter 1 Recording by Kirk Ziegler, Ogden, Utah, voiceover-solutions.com